Good morning to you all. It's great to be here and uh, to be with you. And um, I would, uh, I will uh, tell you uh, today uh, something about uh, the Norwegian king's speeches. But I will also say also a few words, of course, about the kings. And, uh, and at the end, of course, you are more than welcome to ask questions or, or have any comments. Everyone likes a good story. The tales of King Arthur has inspired countless books, theater plays, and movies. So talking about a king would definitely catch some attention, I hope. So let's stick to kings. Not King Alfred of Wessex, nor Rollo of Normandy, not even Eric the Red, the famous grandson of Harald Fairhair, and not the son of Denmark's King Forkbeard, Knut or Canuti, who helped his father conquer England in 1013. None of these bloody tales. I'm going to tell you about the Norwegian king's speeches. Okay, maybe with a little bit of blood left and right, but I will try to keep it decent. But first of all, who was or is the Norwegian king? We must go back to 1905. After 91 long years, the union between Norway and Sweden is finally and peacefully dissolved. Which in itself was quite extraordinary, as countries typically at that time did not get their independence without the fight, without the war. Well, to cut a long story short, Norway finally ended up in 1905 to offer the throne to a Danish prince, Karl, who then took the name King Håkon of Norway. Also, because his wife, Princess Maud, was no other than the daughter of the English king, Edward VII. And this was important because the English support for a newly independent country was essential at that time. But one additional great advantage was that the young couple already had a two-year-old son, Alexander, who was quickly given the Norwegian royal name Olav, and later became King Olav of Norway. So in this way, the heir to the throne was already secured. In other words, it was a real package deal that offered it all, given the circumstances and context at the time. To be quite blunt, it was not actually his great speeches that King Håkon was going to be known for, particularly in the beginning, as he continued speaking Danish and never properly learned Norwegian. In addition to that, in the new Norwegian royal family, they spoke primarily English among themselves. I guess it, it would be something similar to placing an Irishman on the English throne, and that he will continue speaking English with a heavy Irish accent for the rest of his life. But among themselves, they will actually speak French. But the Norwegians, they are a relatively pragmatic and forgiving people. So it worked out very well. But at some point, there was actually a real concern that the young boy, Prince Olav, even after living several years in Norway, was not able to speak Norwegian. 
It went so far as the Norwegian Prime Minister raised the issue directly with His Majesty, but he quickly got the necessary reassurances. Well, King Håkon was clever enough to understand that a way to the Norwegians' hearts was through winter sports, and in particular, skiing. The famous explorer Fritjof Nansen encouraged him. And by the way, he wrote a letter to King Håkon already in 1907. In this letter, Nansen saluted the king for so quickly to have understood the importance of, as Nansen put it, adoring the Norwegian winter. Nansen also reminded King Håkon that the greatest of all Norwegian kings was Olav Tryggvason. And he went back, of course, then to the proud Viking era. Even though Tryggvason also lost the famous battle at Svolder. But why was Tryggvason recognized as the greatest? Because he was a sportsman. As seen from this unique photo, Suddenly, the king and the queen, Danish and British by birth, as we know, accompanied by the young prince, are frequently observed practicing cross-country skiing, as they understand how much it will be appreciated. But the defining moment for the young prince Olav was definitely Monday, the 27th of February, 1927. Mark that date. And what actually happened? The young crown prince made a ski jump at the holiest of the holiest grails in Norway, the Holmen Collen Ski Jump Arena. And for those of you who have never visited Oslo, you will see the Holmen Collen Ski Jump as a major reference point in the landscape. So as, in a way, to remind us all of its huge importance. And here actually is a photograph of that famous ski jump. And you see, it reminds us more of Eddie the Eagle than really one of these slick ski jumpers that we see today. But Olav instantly won the hearts and minds of the Norwegian people on that cold, dark winter day. He became forever one of us. The importance of it is perhaps hard to explain to non-Norwegians, but I guess it's something like uh, or similar to a young English prince playing the FI Cup final in football at Wembley and then scoring the decisive goal. <laughs> but back to the speeches. Some years after the, he became king, King Håkon writes to a close friend, and I quote, I am nervous for a lot in the coming year, but not at least for giving speeches, as it's truly not so easy for me to stand and say something when you're actually expected to say nothing concrete. <laughs> he always kept his speeches very short and general during the first three decades of his reign, which, by the way, lasted until 1957, so altogether 52 years. At the same time, he very much strived for more of a political role or influence, particularly when it came to foreign and defense policy. 
And most of all, he wanted to be able to be seen as some sort of confidential advisor to the government, which, of course, he formally met on a regular basis. But, of course, a constitutional monarchy offers little of such an opportunity to a sovereign. But having said that, in the latter part of his reign, and in particular during and after the Second World War, he became very, very influential. And could at times even raise sensitive economic and political issues in his speeches. And speeches was, as we might expect, the only way the Norwegian king communicated to the general public. One such occasion was his speech in front of 50,000 people outside the city hall in Oslo on his 80th birthday the 3rd of August, 1952. After the war, there was a severe housing shortage in Norway, and in particular in northern Norway, where the Germans had burned down every house and building in sight. In his historical speech, King Håkon bluntly expressed, but still quite politely, a dissatisfaction with the government's efforts in meeting these needs. The impact was instant. And a Norwegian historian has later pointed out that, and I quote, if it in 1952 existed a person in Norway with greater authority and power than the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Trade, and the entire Organization for Economic Development and Trade, together it was King Håkon. So how come? This more than century-long fairy tale of a new constitutional monarchy in Norway ends up being so successful. Because it was definitely against the odds and certainly not a given thing. Part of it was three very wise decisions taken by King Håkon himself during very critical moments in the history of Norway starting in 1905, when he surprisingly demanded a popular referendum before he could accept the Norwegian throne. And in this way, Norway became the first and probably the last democratically elected monarchy in European history. The second defining moment was in 1928, when the Labour Party at that time extremely radical compared to today, suddenly won the majority in the Norwegian parliament. But at that time, many was indeed scared by the repercussions of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, and strong political forces in Norway could not imagine that such a revolutionary party, even seen as communist by some, could be given the keys to the governmental offices. And King Håkon, was certainly under a tremendous pressure to avoid that he formally asked the leader of the Labour Party to form a new government. But King Håkon stood firm, as always trying to live up to the fundamental principles of a constitutional monarchy. And he ended up asking the Labour Party leader to form a new government. Although the government only lasted three weeks, and by that came the shortest sitting in Norwegian history, it was a very clever move by the king, but most of all, a principled decision. 
that allowed him to be seen as not only the king that favored the traditional conservative elites at that time, but from that moment on, he became the king also for the radicals and even the communists in Norway. And thirdly, after Hitler's invasion of Norway in April 1940, the parliament and the government were set under an immense pressure to find some sort of a negotiated settlement with Nazi Germany. And some observers will say it was the firm and resolute rejection of any such proposal by King Håkon himself that helped the government refuse such German advances. King Håkon shall even have threatened to abdicate should the government decide to negotiate such a settlement with the Germans. So in Norwegian history, the dates 1905, 1928, and 1940 have been recognized as the defining moments of the modern Norwegian monarchy. But another aspect that was really helped define the monarchy in Norway has certainly been the king's speeches. In particular, the speeches the exiled King Håkon held from BBC in London during the Second World War. Encouraging the Norwegians to continue the fight against the Germans, his speeches would inspire a whole nation. As a matter of fact, the speeches of the king were so effectful that the puppet regime, the Quisling government, installed by the Germans in 1940, confiscated and banned the use of ra all radios in Norway in 1941. When it comes to the speeches of his son, King Olav, who became king in 1957 and remained so until his death in 1991, I must say that King Olav's annual speeches to the Norwegian people always on the New Year's Eve, was not so impressive and often quite repetitive in terms of themes. He tended to always give a short description of major internal and external developments and frequently repeat the crucial role of the United Nations, as well as often highlighting the flight of refugees. And at the end, he always offered his gratitude to the war veterans, including the sailors. A major reason for this, I think, is his personal efforts and experience from the war, which no doubt marked him as a man. I must quickly add that King Olav never really took advantage of the many tools in the rhetorical toolbox that you are so familiar with. Although at times he could use quite effectively some quotations from Norwegian literature, upon reading his main speeches, I often got the impression that they were probably drafted by rock-solid, stringent military officers that anyhow occupied most of the posts and positions at the royal castle during his entire reign. King Olav also happened to be dyslectic, so he did not enjoy reading lengthy speeches. But at the same time, he had the memory of an elephant, which helped a lot. Let me now bring you up to date to contemporary Norway, and I will briefly highlight two of the most important speeches of our current king, King Harald. I must admit 
And in general, King Harald's speeches are very good and well written, certainly with the input of professional speechwriters. But let me start by saying that if anyone were to live in the delusion that giving speeches is something King Harald likes, then one must think again. No, it's not, he openly admits. It's a great paradox that giving speeches has never been something that King Harald likes. But again, it was the same for his father, King Olaf. At the same time, King Harald has grown as a speaker and gradually become a very skilled one. But much more important, the king is today one of the very few that very many people in Norway actually listens to. I have probably changed as a speaker over the years, but it is unconscious, King Harald admits in an interview. You get older and wiser, hopefully. I used to be very shy. I still is. And it's boring in situations like that, he admits. Despite his shyness, what the king actually says has become highly important. And it has had a decisive impact on the lives of many Norwegians. Even in a well-developed and modern democracy as ours. And the most important platform of, for the king's speeches are, of course, the annual New Year speech. But also, there are a few other speeches that he has given over the last 30 years that has been crucial, such as during the memorial service in the aftermath of the terrible terrorist attacks on, in Norway on the 22nd of July 2011, as well as the famous garden party speech he delivered in September 2016. Still to this day, more than 10 years later, none of us can fully comprehend the devastating terrorist attacks that unfolded in July 2011 in Oslo and in Utøya. However, just a month after, during the memorial service in Oslo in August 2011, King Harald will deliver a very moving speech, and many Norwegians shall never forget the moment when his voice cracks and it's just before he breaks down in tears at the rostrum. The king's few but very well-chosen words, as well as his emotions, shall deeply touch the bereaved and the many Norwegians who see and hear him on television this evening. Then let me also briefly at the end say a few words about another very important speech. I already mentioned it the garden party speech at the Royal Castle in Oslo in 2016. It will be a garden party completely out of the ordinary, not because of the exquisite canapés or, or the wonderful diversity of people who are present this nice, warm September day in Oslo, but because King Harald will say something that hardly any of those present will forget. So what is Norway, the king will ask initially in his speech. He will then go on and answer the question completely in a completely unsurpassed way. Not unexpectedly, the king, of course, starts by describing the beautiful and magnificent nature in Norway. But then he comes to the most important thing of all, the people. 
Countless are the times the king himself has emphasized in his speeches what we as individuals, each and every one of us, can bring it about as long as we dare and want to. But Norway is above all people, the king states. He certainly knows this because he has met countless of them in audiences and on the numerous trips all around the country over several decades. He further explains, Norwegians have also emigrated from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Poland, Sweden, Somalia, and Syria. My grandparents emigrated from Denmark and England 110 years ago. And then he goes on. Norwegians are young and old, tall and short, able-bodied and wheelchair users. More and more are over 100 years old. Norwegians are rich, poor, and in between. Norwegians like football and handball, climbing mountain peaks and sailing, while others are most fond of the sofa. But then he eventually comes to the main message. Norwegians are girls who love girls, boys who love boys, and girls and boys who love each other. It shall be a speech that generates an incredible number of positive reactions, also from abroad. Some commentators will even suggest it's so skillfully written that you can add music to it. I was surprised that it hit so hard, King Harald admits in an interview with a major Norwegian newspaper a few months later. He explains further, because I think I just listed what actually is today's Norway. That it should come as such a big surprise for so many was a little strange. The king is no doubt distinctly modest in his sober analysis of the speech, this historic September day. But the word he uses shall mean a lot to so many, and in particular to those for far too long have felt disrespected and been discriminated against. And with this, I think uh, I will end my presentation to you. And um, admittedly, this was more like an episode maybe of Downton Abbey than that of Valhalla. <laughs> but I hope it sparked maybe at least uh, an, uh, some interest in you uh, about Norway, our kings, and, and their speeches. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you.